Do people have a right in America to think of think unpopular ideas, crazy ideas, or even racist ideas? You can't have the freedom to be right without the, without the freedom to be wrong. Um, and you know, like I said before, I think it's valuable if there are, as my um, mentor Harvey Silverglade, who I mentioned before, put it. Um, his way of putting it very simply. You know, I want to know who the Nazis are in the room. He, he, he's Jewish. I, I want to know who I don't turn my back to. So even just from that informational standpoint. Um, but, it, you know, like the things debated out in the marketplace of ideas is really important. Um, but like I said, it's also just important to not open the door so that power can decide what opinions are, are okay and which ones aren't. And unfortunately, I think we've opened that door more than I thought we ever would yeah, in my lifetime as a first time lawyer. And I'm trying to argue, make argue for closing it back up. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential. And here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for being with us for another episode of American Potential. Of course, one of the topics that we love to talk about, we don't talk about it enough, is freedom of speech. Now, according to the Annenberg Constitution Day Civics Survey in 2021, 74% of Americans could name freedom of speech as a right in the First Amendment. Freedom of religion was second at 56%, and freedom of the press was third at 50%. But only 20% could name the right to petition the government uh, as a freedom in the First Amendment. Now, Freedom of speech captures the essence that every individual has the right to express their thoughts, their ideas, their beliefs without government interference or censorship. Now, today's guest went to college to become a First Amendment lawyer, but has also added best-selling author to his resume. He's been published in multiple publications. He frequently appears on TV and radio programs. And he's testified before the U.S. House and Senate about free speech on college campuses. I want to welcome Greg Lukianoff, who is the president and CEO of Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for saying my name so well. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I try, I looked it up. Now, I mm-hmm. looked it up. Now, I do have some friends who know you, so I did ultimately ask them. But it's not often said correctly i've noticed (laughs) well it's the fault of the fact that when when my family came uh, to this country you know my dad only came here in the 50s um and the way they spell it's a pretty common ukrainian slash russian name and it's l-u-k-y-a-n-o-v is the way they spell it now um and Ah. i tried to urge my family to change the spelling um but now i've been stuck being hey lukianov Uh, that's great. So let's let's start with your organization, uh, Foundation for Individual Rights uh, and Expression, or Fire. Tell us about that. Uh, what what does the uh, your foundation do? Sure, um, I'm a you know I couldn't be prouder of Fire. Uh, it was founded in 1999 by Alan Charles Coors, one of the leading scholars of the Enlightenment and of Voltaire, uh, who was at uh, Penn University at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and Harvey Silverglate, um, still a very well-known civil liberties lawyer um, and, and criminal defense attorney. Um, we were founded in order to protect freedom of speech um, and academic freedom on campus. Um, but uh, in 
2022, last year, we changed our name to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression from Individual Rights and Education because we wanted people to understand that in order to save campus, we have to save the rest of society. In order to save the rest of society, we have to save campus. So campus will still be a major and is still a major focus of us and, and, and of mine. But we've now started doing lawsuits off campus defending uh, free speech rights of, of uh, everyone. Yeah, and it used to be that there there were other organizations, I think, that would step up and and fight some of these battles. But I think over the last many years, it seems like there there have been fewer organizations that are willing to step in and defend free speech rights of of average everyday citizens. Well, in a nonpartisan way, um, the right. uh, de- definitely it, it's it's one of those things where. You know, it's easy to defend speech you agree with. Um, there was something really irresponsible written in the, in the L.A. Times um, that was a, a columnist saying that fire only defends speech it agrees with. And I'm like, apparently you're under the impression that we agree with all speech then, because if you look at our our record, we've we've defended everybody, no matter how unsympathetic um, and on both sides of basically every hot button issue in the United States. Yeah. So so what made you want to even go to college, become a First Amendment lawyer in the first place? Well, my parents are um, uh, first. Uh, my, my parents are immigrants um, and it's a very kind of typical uh, sort of first generation kid appreciation of some of the things that America does right. That sometimes people who are you know, fourth or fifth generation don't seem to get. Right. Um, so I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of other immigrant kids. Um, and if you're an immigrant kid, that means there's a good chance you're le- you're coming from a country that's authoritarian, totalitarian um, or otherwise, you know, doesn't really solidly uh, guarantee your rights, because, frankly, that's an awful lot of the rest of the world. Um, so we grew up with a special appreciation for um, the First Amendment being something special uh, like in the U.S., but I was also working class and, and um, work, you know, working class it seems to kind of get these issues a little better. And then finally, when I was in college, I was a student journalist. And if you ever want to see free speech in action, you know, work as an editor in a student newspaper and see how often people come into your office and demand that you fire this reporter or rescind that article. And you start putting together. It's like, wow, this has to be really expansive in order to work. So I went to law school specifically to study First Amendment law. I uh, took every class at Stanford Law School offered on free speech. When I ran out, I did six credits on the censorship uh, on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, an independent study I, I made up. And I uh, interned at the ACLU of Northern California in, uh, back in 99. So when Harvey Silverglade asked the de- then dean of Stanford who she'd recommend for this new organization, FIRE, to, to make their first legal director, it remains the greatest compliment I've ever received that um, she mentioned me by name. That's 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 great. What a great story. Now, Greg, just at its basic level, I mean, why is free speech so important? Oh, man. I mean, freedom of speech. This is it. I can I can I can spend all day talking about the various philosophies of why free speech is important. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll cut right to my um, idiosyncratic take on it. Um, okay. And I call it the pure informational theory on freedom of speech, which I sometimes refer to as the lab in the looking glass, that everything about humanity is worth knowing. Um, And what I'm getting at there is that you can't know the world as it is without knowing what people really think, full stop. Um, That essentially, if the project of human knowledge is to know the world as it is um, and to understand the universe, you can't get anywhere near it if you don't know what people actually think. 
Um, and this is one of the reasons why. Yeah, it's a utilitarian argument for freedom of speech, but it's uh, basically means that any opinion is worth knowing. Anything that certainly anything that anyone actually believes is worth knowing. Um, and I, I offer it kind of uh, to, to overcome to a degree what I think are arguments that have been um, sort of whittled down, particularly on campus, to now mean something uh, a relatively weak protection of freedom of speech. And I think that this is partially because people haven't been arguing back against them as well. Also partially because um, attitudes about free speech have really changed over the decades, you know, on campus. And I want to remind people that there that even before just getting to things like natural law, you know, you can make an argument that's utilitarian, but nonetheless means you think every single opinion should be protected. Right. Yeah. I mean, we talk about. People get into tribes in the United States, right? They, they, they yeah. there's the conservative tribe and the liberal tribe, and it seems like people tend to want to, uh, you know, protect the free speech rights of their tribe. Yeah. But it, 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 that's easy, right? That's yeah. that's not what the that's First what Amendment is does. about. Is to to protect speech that you agree with, right? It's very valuable to protect speech you disagree with. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the case? Oh, absolutely. I mean, th there's nothing more natural to defend the free speech rights of people you agree with. That's right. uh, also just self-interest. You know, I don't want to go to jail. I don't like these people. It's, it's a much higher level um, to be obnoxious about of moral sophistication to, to actually say, you know, the, the old um, summary of, of the views of Voltaire, which is actually someone said summarizing his point of view in 1910. You know, um, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Um, and what while that sounds rightfully uh, that that's considered noble um i do think that also well of course you should because we're, we're a democratic republic like the, the, the what on earth would that mean if you can't actually say some opinions that you're no longer uh, truly representative of the people if some opinions are 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 you know off off limits yeah it uh, there's so many folks i think today that that are unwilling to to pay the price and to stand up when they see their their own free speech uh, being violated. And I can think of it. We had you know we had Joe Kennedy on talking about kind of his case and going to the Supreme Court with that and the price that he paid, the personal price yeah. that he paid. There aren't a lot of people in America today, in my view, that have the courage and the uh, the, the fortitude to stand up and fight, but that's really important. That's the only way free speech will survive in the United States is if we have people, heroes really, who stand up and defend free speech rights. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, a big part of what um, my new book with Ricky Schlott, Canceling the American yeah. Mind, is arguing is something beyond First Amendment law, which is free speech culture. And Free speech culture can't work without courage. You you have to be willing to risk your reputation at minimum um, in order to actually live in a you know in an honest um, in an honest way with with your opinions. Um, so I think that there is sort of an embarrassing lack of courage around these issues sometimes, but there's also an embarrassing amount of certainty around issues that, to say the least, are not settled. Yeah. When when we talk about uh, having that courage to stand up and do that, there are groups, yours being one of them. There are several others that will help, you know, in a in a legal capacity, maybe help someone have the courage to do that. But they still pay that 
sort of pay that personal price. But it that free speech only survives if we have people who are willing to stand up and pay that price. And I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, when, when you talk about uh, kind of this just beyond what the First Amendment means, you know, we've talked on this show a lot about the First Amendment being you know, government doesn't have the right to infringe yep. upon uh, your freedom of speech. Necessary, but, but not sufficient. <laughs> yeah, right. And it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, Twitter or Facebook doesn't have the right to to right. shut down certain things. But um, we, we should all value a, a culture of free speech, even if it isn't the government. Um, and, and even though I could shut down someone else's speech, it's not in the tradition of America to do so. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, no. I mean, this is something that there's a great book called The People's Darling Privilege that talks about how even though the First Amendment was not strongly interpreted, this might surprise some of your listeners, until 1925 and after, um, that there was a strong sort of folk tradition of freedom of speech that actually did a pretty decent job of protecting it, um, you know, through a lot of the 19th century. Not perfectly, of course. Uh, And I think that when people fall back too much on relying on First Amendment law to be the end-all be-all of, of freedom of speech, they're missing a huge chunk of it that has nothing to do with government coercion. It comes to some of our duties as a citizen to be like, listen, you have just as much right to your opinion as I do, um, even if I think it's abhorrent. In fact, you know, again, it's useful to know uh, that my fellow citizens think things that are abhorrent. You're not safer from reality for knowing less about it. It, 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 it is one of one of my arguments. But when I try to talk about what the parameters of free speech culture include, I have found that yet that uh, one of the ways to show that Americans already know this is by pointing out idioms that weren't very common, uh, with sayings that weren't very common when, say, my co-author, who's 23, was around, um, but are were very common to me and you, which are, everybody's entitled to their opinion, to each their own, walk a mile in a man's shoes, don't judge a book by its cover. All of these things are small-d democratic ideals that actually let you live in a free society while respecting other people. We seem to have lost an awful lot of respect for the right of, of of each other to their opinions. And one of the things that I think really helped create this, unfortunately, are bad ideas that have been uh, brewing on campus for long before my entire career. But I've spent 22 years trying to warn people about them. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about bad ideas. Um, there are some people who believe that, you know, Free speech doesn't protect bad ideas, yeah. but free speech actually does protect bad ideas, doesn't it? Oh, of course it does. Um, the yeah. how, do, how do you get to good ideas, um, yeah. and and what do we define as a bad idea? Like um, the it, it, like I said, it's I I, I make I, I talk about this. Um, the fact that the world is not run by lizard people who under who who live under the Denver airport, you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable. <laughs> that's true. Uh, right. The fact that your girlfriend thinks that it is, the fact that your uncle, the fact that your politicians think there are, that's worth knowing, you know. Um, so ba- things that we can say factually aren't true are still worth knowing is, is absolutely true. But also, when people talk about just going after misinformation or disinformation, I just want to put my hand, do this. I just like, what? do you have any idea how hard it is to know what's true? Um, it, it, Jonathan Rausch, has, has be, I'm lucky to say, has become a good friend. And he wrote a book called Constitution. We wrote a book called Kindly Inquisitors back in 1993, one of the first like real intellectual 
um, a defenses of freedom of speech in the modern age of PC. But he also re recently wrote a book called The Constitution of Knowledge. And the whole thing is like, no, it's hard to know what's actually going on at any given minute. You, um, the idea that we can just decide, oh, well, this is true. It, you usually end up linking yourself to the biases of, of the people in charge um, if you decide to give power um, decisions over, over misinformation, disinformation. And we have a chapter in Canceling the American Mind on COVID making the point that, hey, you know, even if you're wrong, you, you should have a free speech right to be wrong. Um, but let's take a let's take a minute to pause and reflect how many people were actually right about things about COVID who ended up getting treated like they were saying blasphemy and had to shut up. Um, and how it doesn't make it more or less protected, but it does make it especially galling when you see a case like Jennifer Say, you know, at Levi's Jeans, who uh, lost her career essentially because she argued that lockdowns are going to be bad for kids and they're going to be they're going to hit disadvantaged kids the most. And this was treated like this was some kind of horrible heresy. Meanwhile, now everybody, like the experts in general, kind of are like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, actually, it turns out she was right. <laughs> right. But um, so putting particularly government in the role of arbiter of truth is a disastrously short-sighted and foolish idea. Well, and that's – I was just – that was going to be my next question is if if you assume that there is tr one truth – Yep. Who gets to be the arbiter of that truth and why why does the government get to be that arbiter? Yeah, it's especially good because although we argue for a culture of free speech, there's no two ways about it. The government taking on that role is one of the scariest roles that you can imagine. Now, we are concerned, of course, that um, social media plays such a big role in our daily lives um, that when people say that there's censorship on social media and that's harmful – um, I don't disagree. And that's one of the reasons why when uh, Twitter, uh, when Elon Musk took on the formerly named Twitter, um, that I wrote him a big letter saying, like, listen, I, we have lots of advice on how you can actually, you know, um, have free speech, um, even in an environment where the First Amendment doesn't require it. Uh, so I, I, I definitely do get that argument. But I, I am worried that there are attempts to force this through legislation, basically saying that we're going to take the law, and we're going to mandate free speech on Twitter, Facebook, etc. And I think that that's, I don't think you'll like where that actually ends up in the end. I think it may start with something like people are entitled to their opinion, and it's going to end except for, except for once the government has its hands in it, that's, that's troubling. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. And, and isn't that the government basically telling a company, we're going to infringe upon your uh, free speech rights or your oh, 100%. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And I'd I, like I mean, them to so, volunt I'd like them to voluntarily adopt it and I'll make sure. the argument for it. But the uh, government coming in and demanding, you know, um, that you can't have editorial power over social media, I think the cure would end up being worse than the disease, at least in the long run. Yeah, that would be like there. there's some people who would make that argument about Facebook or Twitter or some of the social media platforms that are out there. But they would probably never make that argument that the government ought to come in and and moderate content at a newspaper. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know why it would be any different. Um, is it okay, though? And, and we've had court cases about this, and so mm -hmm. far they've gone swimmingly well. But is it okay for the government to step into these social media companies and, and sort of urge them to start banning this and say that this is untrue? Oh, That's yeah. where it crosses the line, right, of the First Amendment. 
Oh yeah, no, 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 no. That that was something that I was a little bit embarrassed, frankly, um, for some other people in the First Amendment space who came in in defense of the government right to jawbone social media companies into engaging in the censorship that the government actually approves of in Missouri v. Biden, for example. I was just like, oh, man, this is you shouldn't say that one out loud too much because the the, the, uh, yeah, fine. Like, can the government say that does it have its own bully pulpit? Can it say we uh, we think the following things aren't true? Can they argue back? Of course they can. They have the biggest platform in the world, for goodness sakes. It's the president's office. Um, should they be behind the scenes browbeating social media companies into um, you know disapproving speech that the government currently thinks is untrue, which is bound to change, by the way? Um, no, that's very, very dangerous. And we think that the opinions uh, reining some of that in are, are, are good as well. And doesn't it take courage, as we talked about having courage to stand up for free speech, wouldn't it take courage on the part of some of these executives at these at these platforms to stand up and say, no, we're, we're not going to do that. And that, I mean, you kind of talked about Elon Musk. You talked about sending a letter. How's he doing, by the way, with X uh, and standing up for free speech rights in the tradition of the First Amendment? It's been a bit mixed, but not as bad as his critics um, like to say. I, I will say one thing that disappointed me a little bit was uh, one of his rules is saying that uh, he'll follow local law. Uh, and of course, that means following law in other countries that don't protect freedom of speech. Uh-huh. And so there was a bad case um, in India where they're uh, clamping down on a documentary that was very un- unflattering to, to Modi um, in, 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 in India. Um, and, you know, basically the argument was we have to follow local law, even if we don't like it. And I was somewhat impressed to discover that actually before, uh, pre-Musk, Twitter actually usually would put up a bit of a fight about that. To be, to, to, what I mean is to hmm. say, like, listen, we're not going to do this locally. Like, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to resist calls from these governments to do that. Um, now, I think that part of the reason why they can't is because they reduce the amount of staff tremendously at, at X, maybe may making it practically impossible. But I, but I do think that that was an example of where I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, like ultimately you can come to the con- you can come to the conclusion at the end that you really had no choice, but you, you, you should push back. And when it comes to kind of like when I think about ways that Twitter could be better, I've been talking a lot about I wish there was a stream within X um, that was about truth seeking. It's something we talk a lot about in the book, the idea that cancel culture can never get you to truth. It, it can only uh, let you feel like you want an argument without persuading anybody or even making any rational arguments. And I think that if we had a forum that was, you know, people can make whatever argument they want, and uh, but then back it up, but were constricted to the rules of good debate and discussion, we could actually fix some major problems in a way that uh, where all that cognitive energy is currently just wasted on, you know, ad hominems at the moment. Do do people do people have a right in America to think of think unpopular ideas, crazy ideas or even racist ideas? Oh, absolutely. Um, The idea that the law can have any say in what you think um, is a totalitarian idea Um, and the, the freedom to be wrong. You know, you can't have the freedom to be right without the without the freedom to be wrong. Um, and, you know, like I said before, I think it's valuable if there are, as my um, mentor, Harvey Silverglate, who I mentioned before, put it, um, his way of putting it very simply, 
you know, I want to know who the Nazis are in the room. He, he, he's Jewish. I, I want to know who I don't turn my back to. So even just right. from that informational standpoint, um, but it, you know, like the things debated out in the marketplace of ideas is really important. Um, but like I said, it's also just important to not open the door so that power can decide what opinions uh, are, are okay and which ones aren't. And unfortunately, I think we've opened that door more than I thought we ever would yeah, in, in my lifetime as a First Amendment lawyer. And I'm trying to argue, make argue for closing it back up. Sure. Uh, and being wrong. I mean, speech yeah. that's clearly wrong oh, yeah. is protected. If I say, if I say, and I'll make this statement, two plus two equals six, yeah. I mean, is that protected speech? <laughs> well, sure. Uh, the, 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 I, I would hope so, because that would mean every, you know, um, a, a five year old uh, who got it wrong would be would be in serious <laughs> trouble. The uh, yeah, no, no, the, the misinformation. I, 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 I can't say strongly enough. Um, for a long time, the biggest sort of marketing ploy for massive censorship and, um, was hate speech that essentially, yes, it sounds Nice to go after hateful speech, but when you see how it's actually put in action on campus, uh, hate speech has been invoked as the refutation of free speech going back to the 80s. And uh, when you look at what's going on on campus, it's overwhelmingly justified, at least initially, under, under the idea of hate speech. More recently, um, the biggest exception that you exception that you could drive the tr truck uh, drive a truck through is misinformation, disinformation, like I mentioned. And I, I think that. It gets almost like automatic. Well, untrue things shouldn't be shouldn't be allowed. And and it's like, OK, um, you have much more faith in people in power to decide uh, to be able to distinguish between what is true and what's in my interest. Yeah. Um, you, we talked about f fire and your origins on on campus free speech. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, has that has that driven us? Has has the sort of suppression of free speech and and that becoming acceptable for summary for many people across America. Is that what drove us to the place in culture today where we are? Like it became acceptable on college campuses somehow uh, yeah. amongst the elites on college campuses. Is that it drive us to where we are today? Um, you know, I think we got to where we are today through a number of problems, but when it comes to the, problems that we face in terms of attitudes about freedom of speech and whether or not things should be protected. Um, I think that's very much a product of campus. Um, and I think that I think one of the subtler harms that we talk about in canceling the American mind is that it destroys faith and expertise. So I always go to the example of Carol Hooven at Harvard. Carol Hooven wrote a book called Testosterone. Um, she is an evolutionary uh, psychologist. Um, she, you know, has experience working with uh, chimpanzees, you know, for example, and she went on Fox News to explain that, uh, yes, we should be kind and, and compassionate towards trans people. Um, yes, she even went so far as to say we, we should use their pronouns. Of course, my, my argument is you can't be compelled to. That would be a First Amendment um, a violation by itself. Um, but then also said the biological sex is real and we, we can't pretend it's not. And this led to a campaign started by a DEI administrator um, at Harvard, you know, to, to, to get her punished in some way. Um, it, it, and it followed all the typical cancel culture dynamics. Um, students issue a petition. Administrators get mad. Uh, friends kind of won't say anything in her defense. Um, she feels utterly alienated and isolated. A university isn't particularly brave in the face of the criticism either. 
And she eventually, um, she explains that she, you know, had suicidal ideation for the first time in her life. And she, she left campus. Now that's, um, as she came, as Steve Pinker invited her back and now she's, you know, that basically it, it, it led towards the end of her career at Harvard. Um, now that's really bad from an individual standpoint, but think about what that does to faith and expertise. Um, if you, if the next time, you know, some Harvard educated or for that matter, for anywhere in the academy comes out and says, you know what, biological sex isn't real. It's a spectrum. The public isn't stupid. And they look and go, huh, you know, last time anyone said any different, they got canceled. And that's if it happens only once. If if, if that threat happened only once, you have every, it, it becomes absolutely understandable to not trust the, per- the, the, the next person to be objective. But in the case in in, coddle, in canceling, we talk about over a thousand examples of people targeting professors, with about two thirds of them getting punished in some way. Over like almost two hundred of them getting fired. Uh, I think four, plus forty of them who were tenured, which was unheard of, and one in six professors saying they've been investigated uh, or, or threatened with investigation for their academic freedom. I mean, we're in a very serious situation that needs some very serious reform. Are we making progress on campuses? I, I think there has been pushback over the last decade on some of these uh, some of these I, these free speech violations. I think on college campuses is are we making progress there? Fire has been very effective at saving individual professors and individual students from being canceled or otherwise censored. Um, the we've been able to help reduce the number of speech codes dramatically on campus, but that's. That's all of the good news. Um, the bad news is that uh, we need a much more serious uh, level of reform if we're uh, to sort of save academia from itself. Uh, we, we spend about a third of the book talking about potential solutions, and we talk about that in um, uh, parenting and in, in K-12 reform, how to keep your corporation out of the culture war, and reforms that you can do um, in higher education. But I do actually think that we should be thinking really quite big. Uh, I, I've, I've said at, um, quite often that I think one of the things that could really help America would be if there was some way to prove you were uh, – if there was some super-duper hard test that you had to pass to show that you learned everything a humanities student at Harvard might have learned in the 1950s when the, when, when the demands were much, much, much higher. And, you know, offer it for free, you know, online somewhere. Um and that could tell employers, you know, essentially this is the hardest working person out there. Um, and it would allow them to totally skip these these institutions that I think have terrible ideas about freedom of speech uh, and are producing way too much of uh, 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 America's sort of like leadership class. Yeah. How about uh, social just that social pressure that you're talking about, I think, is uh, is a difficult thing. Again, I think takes courage for people to stand up and and swim upstream on that social pressure. But uh, let's talk about the difference between that and say an employer. I mean, what does an employer have the ability to say, look, you you can't wear that at, at the store. You can't say that uh, during work hours. Talk about that a little bit. The employer, you know, from a first amendment perspective um, and we, we, we fought for this, you know, for our whole existence, you know, have the right to hire and fire who they want, and they can have good reasons or bad reasons. Um, what I did start to get worried about, though, over the years was if we end up in a situation where every employer thinks they're not just a widget factory, but also a widget uh, widget factory 
and a an organization with a political cause, that starts to look like a situation. And and by the way, this might sound might might sound like what we were starting the world the country was starting to look like in 2020 and 2021, where you can have a job um, only if you keep your mouth shut about your actual opinion. So even though I want companies to continue to have the First Amendment, you know, right to, to decide these things, I want to caution them to think about what kind of world they're creating. Um, if it, the, the case is, if you disagree with the boss's political opinion, you can be fired and that's normal. That's not a healthy place to end up because basically you end up having, you know, the freedom of speech almost only in theory that essentially you, you, you have freedom of speech, but you can't, you can't feed your family. So even though, uh, so that's one of the difficult things about cultural arguments is you're not saying something that's as easy as a black and white, but we're saying, please Try to make sure that your employees still know that they have the right to speak out on issues they care about. Sometimes you'll hate what they actually have to say, but it's a healthier republic um, if it, if you it's also a healthier company, frankly, if you're willing to hire people who who, who have points of view um, all over the spectrum. You talked a little bit about uh, your new book, uh, The Canceling of the American Mind. Tell us a little bit about. Uh, the, the book itself uh, it sounds like a, an amazing read. I actually have just ordered it, um, but oh, thank tell you. folks where they can get that and sure. uh, and a little bit more about the book. Sure. Yeah. Canceling of the American Mind um, is my book with 23-year-old uh, journalist Ricky Schlott. Um, and, uh, you know, it was nice to write a book with a Gen Z woman since so much <laughs> of my, my previous book, Coddling the American Mind, was about issues faced by Gen Z women. Um, so the book tries to do three things. One, sh- uh, not uh, show not only is cancel culture real, it's amazing you still have to do that with some people, but show that it ha- it's happening on a historic scale, which we do. Two, get people to think about it as a way of ch- – a cheap way to win arguments without actually winning arguments um, and to situate it in like an entire – uh, lazy system of argumentation that gets you no tr- closer to truth, and then three offer uh, a lot of you, you know potential starting points uh, for solutions. Uh, and it just came out uh, uh, just last week. The um, and you know when I'm feeling a, a little snarkier, uh, you know the way I say it is like you know that person in your life who always told you that cancel culture isn't real. This makes a great stocking stuffer, um, <laughs> like by by all means, because not only do we give tons of examples, get, quote tons of 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 really persuasive data, uh, we also even do things like we open every chapter with a quote from someone famous about cancel culture, and so we have the Pope. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, James Carville, Helen Bottom Carter, and Taylor Swift, you know, talking about the problem of, of, of cancel culture. So, uh, so, so the idea that kind of uh, the, the people who continue to say cancel culture is some kind of hoax are just really raising their hand to say, you might not want to take that person seriously anymore. And, and where can they get the book? If they want to buy the book. Uh, anywhere. Um, it, it should be out in bookstores. Uh, definitely, you know, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon.com. Um, it's it's available everywhere. It's hopefully, you know, and right. if it's not available at your local library, um, uh, chastise them until they get it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. If anybody wants to learn a little bit more about the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression uh, or FIRE, where can they go to, to learn more? Thefire.org, and in particular, check out our campus free speech rankings. It's the most comprehensive, by far, ranking of schools according to freedom of speech. Um, you know, some schools do well, like University of Virginia and University of Chicago, and some schools finish dead last, like Harvard did, uh, dead, uh, 248 out of, out of 248, and boy, did they earn it. 
Yeah, we, we actually did an episode. Casey Maddox joined me and we kind oh, of Casey's walked great. through the fire rankings and, and, uh, we, we did a show. We actually compared it to the, to the basketball tournament and, and, you know, who won each division and those sorts of things. It was a pretty, pretty good episode of the show. Yeah, that's great stuff. And that's, that's information a parent should want to know before they send their money to those colleges and universities as well. 100%. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks, Greg, for joining us. I appreciate uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Now, listen, this is – I talked before about Joe Kennedy being a hero. Um, Greg is a hero, too. And I, I want people to understand what FIRE is doing is defending and protecting the First Amendment and our free speech rights. And so uh, I hope you will help them out. You will learn more about them. You'll do whatever you can. To, to help them be successful because they're out there fighting for all of us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.